Welcome to the Today's Market Explained podcast. I am your host, Brian Castle, and with me, as always, is the amazing co-host, Chris Reardon. Chris is the Director of Development, and I'm the CEO and founder of Four Star Wealth Advisors. Our promise with this show is to share the most important investment opportunities that we are seeing in ways that are easy to understand and hopefully even easier for you to benefit from so you can make money quickly and easily by investing. Each episode will detail the most important market updates and how best to benefit from them. And we will also be interviewing subject matter experts who can give insights into new and exciting markets and other investment opportunities. So to maximize every episode's value, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com to download, quote, 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals, unquote. Trust us, this free gift will be your cheat sheet for reaching your financial goals in the shortest possible time. And to see all the best and most valuable moments from this episode, please go to Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, let's see what's happening in the financial markets. Hey, welcome everybody back to uh, Today's Market Explained podcast. It's a four-star podcast series and uh, video series as well. And uh, normally we do a market commentary uh, every every month a couple of times, but then we uh, mix in uh, to that uh, set of content interviews with um, major players in the economic system who are covering really interesting subjects that we think our listeners would like to hear about. So today we have an interview uh, episode, and today we have a, a really interesting character, Jason Bordanek, and Jason uh, is the managing partner of Hudson Valley Property Group. Uh, he's a Stanford grad and a really interesting entrepreneur. So welcome to Today's Market Explained, Jason. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, look, looking forward to, to, to our conversation today. Uh, now, you, you um, have created a company that is involved in affordable housing and, and how, you know, we're going we're gonna to understand what you mean by that and what, what your company actually does. But what I really want to focus on to begin with is how do you got to the point where you founded this company? And it has to do a lot with, in my view, your, your early background. And you, you actually, Jason, you started a company in your dorm room. <laughs> Yeah, I've been an entrepreneur since uh, since I was 18. Um, and yeah, I love uh, the experience of building a company, of starting it and having a vision and, and piecing it all together. And um, yeah, my first company, as, as you mentioned, you're correct, was out of my dorm room, one of those uh, cliche stories. Um, um, and it was out of my own experience uh, with struggling to find a place to live. At that time, uh, this was around the year 2000. Uh, it was early in the internet development of how it's being used, but at the school, you use classified ads to find places to live. And it was a very inefficient process where you would look through papers, you would look on a variety of you know static websites and collect information and then walk the streets looking at apartments. And today that sounds crazy, but at the time that was the norm. And so I had an idea at the time of a better way to do it. And I submitted the idea in a business plan competition at my school. And the, the idea was that we were going to create this online marketplace where local property owners and property managers would list their properties and students would come on and search from the comfort of their dorm room or wherever they were. And 
you know, see, see the available listings, you know, apply for leases and really make the process a lot more seamless and, and, uh, and save them time. And it was one of the winners of the contest. I worked um, on it over a summer to develop the initial software and set it up at the University of Virginia, which is where I went to my, my undergrad. And it was a big success. I think like 80% of, of first-year students, you call it first year at UVA, you don't say freshman, you say first year, but your freshman or first-year students used it in their search. And it was successful at University of Virginia. And from there, built a, a model to bring it to universities across the country and expand it out to over 130 universities and helping more than 2 million students find housing each year. And that company ultimately was acquired by, by CoStar, who, who is the owner of Apartments.com and a variety of other real estate technology services. And my company, which is uh, now called Off Campus Partners, is a, a part of, of CoStar. And so I had that tremendous experience of building a company from scratch that was addressing the needs of my fellow students uh, and, and really, you know, the, the sales pitch, you know, of, of selling something that is not there today, the idea of, of building something to, to meet the needs. I think that was incredibly rewarding to, to say, hey, I, you know, I played a role in that. I, I knew my future would be filled with more entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, when, when I thought about it, I really wanted my next endeavor to be something that was on a much bigger scale and a much bigger with, with more impact. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. I just knew that that was what, in my mind, what sounded really exciting and what really got me going when I was looking at different ideas. And when I went back to Stanford, I looked at a variety of, of business plans and business ideas and nothing really, really stuck until I connected with a childhood friend, uh, Andy Cavaluzzi, who's now my business partner, uh, on a side, on a project at the time that was a side project. It was a real estate project where we we came together and he, he was, you know, working on a real estate project and came to me initially for an investment. And, and I was like, well, I won't, it's not for me to invest, but I'll help you raise the money. And we worked on this project to buy a building, you know, not too far from where we grew up, which is in the Hudson Valley. That was, you know, serving a lower income uh, demographic. It was in poor condition and we utilized various programs to, to, to buy it, to renovate it. And what we found was we, one, delivered a great return to our investors, um, but of equal importance, we, we made a huge impact on the lives of all the residents. And that was really interesting. And I was, we were like, let's find another one of these. Let's find another one. And at the time, it wasn't thought of as this is going to be like the big idea of where we were going to spend our time. But the more we dug into it, the more we realized that affordable housing is actually a very large asset class. Uh, there's about you know, four or five million units that are under affordable programs in the U.S. today. And really no one's focused the business on professionalizing and institutionalizing this asset class at scale. And, you know, that one early project led, in, led into a bigger vision of saying, hey, let's build a company around doing these types of projects, but figuring out how we can do this at scale. And these types of projects are one where it's existing affordable housing, where you go in, 
you know, you put the financing together and you figure out how we are going to elevate the quality of the, the physical aspect of it, the quality of how it's operated, you know, and then as we've grown, we've really thought about how do we actually deliver even more to our residents, but that's, that's where it all started. And now we, you know, we, we run a, a real estate private equity firm focused exclusively on affordable housing and the mission driven company that's delivering, you know, market, market level returns. Nice. So uh, that's quite an evolution. So the dorm room was in Charlottesville. The, the dorm room was in Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah, right. Beautiful, beautiful town. And I, I love coming back. I actually come back in the spring each year and I, I teach a class session there and it gives me an excuse to come back and nice. go to my own stomping grounds. But uh, Charlottesville is uh, yeah, a special place. And how quickly did you make it out to Stanford? Were you doing more development between them or did you go right, right away for an MBA? No, I, I did. Um, there's about three years between, so I started the company um, off-campus partners, which was, which was really off-grounds, but that I started when I was a um, student at the University of Virginia. I ultimately brought on a, um, my partner and um, her father actually ended up coming on as my partner and they invested in and the setup was actually that I was going to leave the day-to-day business and potentially have an opportunity to come back. And so I left for a few years to gain more leadership experience, more develop, more managerial experience. I went through a rotational leadership program at the Home Depot, which was uh, an intentional choice. Was you know, while a lot of my classmates were going to consulting and to, to banking, I knew I wanted to run a company and wanted to get really hands-on experience. And so the the um, the program, which was which was originally uh, targeted towards like MBA students at my school. Uh, was was willing to consider me given I had started a company already in college. And so I, I got into this program um, at the Home Depot where every six months I worked on a different aspect of the business and got in, you know hands-on operational experience. Uh, and that's what I did before going back uh, for my MBA. Um, and and uh, it was a great experience. And I still keep uh, in contact with some of my, uh, you know, some of the fellow uh, peers that work there and some of them are, you know, running other companies now. And, and also my, my boss, who's a very senior, he runs one of the divisions there now. So it's been, nice. it was a great experience and was relevant for the next steps in my career. Nice. So you found, you found the company uh, in college now CoStar owns that uh, experience at Home Depot. And then that led you when you did the MBA uh, to that uh, situation where you figured out uh, affordable housing could be a great business. You do, you said do it at scale. So to be able to actually make money doing it as well, uh, it's not a, not a charity. Um, but some people think you can't make money at affordable housing, but you're, you're here to tell us that's not true. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we, it's an asset class that's been mismanaged. It's a very, fragmented space uh, and you know a lot of the owners don't have the scale or the wherewithal to to properly run the, the properties um, but it's it's a real estate asset and, and there's value in the asset and and similar to really other areas of real estate it's it's you know there's ways to add value um, and this is one where you know we've 
as we've built our company around it and brought sophistication to how we finance, to how we improve the operations and, the, and, then, and improve the property physically, we're able to take a property um, that is really, you know, as I mentioned, mismanaged and, and, and really increased its, val- its value. And, and similar to other investment models, that's, you know, it's a way of making, making money. And this is one where we're, we're just, there's an alignment between delivering value to our investors and also giving a better product for the residents. So Jason, you mentioned that you're a private equity firm that is doing uh, development of affordable housing. So are you, um, in the early days, were you more involved in the, the building of the prop, you know, the rehabbing of the properties and all that, or, um, and, and has that changed now? Is it a different scale? Yeah. So in terms of our progression, it might be helpful. So we, I mean, we're, we've always been focused on existing affordable housing. Uh, there is a supply demand imbalance. Uh, there's, as I mentioned, the four to 5 million units of, of supply and the demand, depending on what study you look at is like four or five times that it's only getting worse. Uh, and, and so we've been focused on really the preservation aspect of it. And we started our business developing expertise on all the programs that are necessary to finance these preservation projects. And, and we, we raised capital on a, on a project by project basis in the early years. Um, so the business has always been kind of actually the same in terms of what we do. We've just, you know, we've enhanced our capabilities, you know, and, and big step functions along the way. I think first developing the expertise of, of how to execute these types of projects as the developer um, and, you know, going to third-party capital to do that. And, you know, there's various programs that have been utilized and there's banks that invest into this space as well as other institutional firms. Oh yeah, we first developed our expertise around these programs of how to buy, renovate, and enhance the units. And then as we built out that track record over about eight years, our first eight years, we did probably about a half a billion dollars of projects before really going out and then, you know, forming our first fund, you know, so we, we now run a series of, of institutional funds um, that are focused on the space. And, and so that's really been the progression from sort of first being a developer of kind of knowing how to piece it together to then, you know, bring in in-house the financial capabilities and then, you know, we've built out construction management, we built out a robust asset management. Um, and, you know, we have a over a 40 member team now with, you know, a vertically integrated platform that's, you know, doing these projects around the country. To date, we've, you know, done over $2 billion of projects and it's, it's growing from, you know, exponentially, I would say, from where we were before. And um, the need is only getting greater and our capabilities are, are getting greater. So it's kind of a, you know, we're, trying to make sure we keep the same quality or enhance the quality as we grow. So not, you know, growing in a smart way, but, but that's, yeah, that's been our progression. So you mentioned that the opportunity um, is many, many times what you're involved in as far as size. Uh, Why do you think that this um, market segment has been so overlooked? It's been overlooked for a variety of reasons. Um, One has been it's, it's fragmentation. Uh, the average owner in our space is an owner of like one property or 1.2 properties. And, and so when you look at really the mm-hmm. 
sophisticated institutional, you know, capital, they have much typically have much bigger capital to, to deploy. And so it's a hard space to deploy capital in or historically has been. And now there's been groups like us that have been kind of consolidating it. But I think the fragmentation has been one reason. I would say another big reason is some of these programs that we utilize in order to, to make the investment possible are relatively new. Um, so I think the idea of historically it's been, hey, let's, we need more of this, or we need this improved. Let's throw a grant at this, let's get subsidy, let's let's use let's use another program to help support the previous program. And I think there's been historically a little bit of a, a skepticism, like, oh, we don't being careful of bringing in new capital or private equity in that is going to continue to operate it. Um, you know, in the in the way that it was intended, but I think as 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 the need has continued to grow, and some of these budgets, you know, have been kind of cut or or limited, I think the idea of leveraging the programs with private investment makes a ton of sense. And sort of the public private approach is something that is not just in affordable housing, but in, in other areas is kind of gaining steam um, from a societal level. And I think so. I think that the combination of you know more players like us who are sophisticated that are able to kind of deploy the capital in the space together with sort of a acceptance that private investment in affordable housing makes a lot of sense and so and programs and policy has moved towards that and 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 then you know and then I think institutions sometimes are risk averse they want to see other ones go in there first and and have a good outcome and so you've seen some early um, early participants and I think over time, that's it's proven out to be a very resilient asset class. And the and then during the pandemic, I think accelerated a lot of that because a lot of other areas of real estate did not perform, you know, super well. And they were like, "Well, what is performing well?" And they were like, "Well, the investment we made into affordable housing has been uh, has held up." And so I think a combination of factors have now attracted more more interest. And and we're we're positioned well as a as a firm that has both the the expertise of knowing how to do the projects the right way, but then also having access to the capital to do mm-hmm. to do it at scale, and and then we have you know I would say then there's the mission side of it, which is super important. Uh, a lot of you know a lot of the uh, agencies you know in in program is really set up from a mission level, and so you really need groups that understand that and really understand the purpose of why we're, we're doing what we do. And this is all we do. And, and it's, there's, you know, ESG frameworks and metrics that we're following and tracking to make sure we're, we're, we're not just making a great return. We're also, you know, making impact. Okay. So um, this is kind of an emerging segment. So how was the affordable housing segment served before, you know, you've identified some of the ways you operate and others uh, how was how was this market served, or was it not served? Well, it wasn't adequately served. I would say there's been different programs that have come out. You know, initially there was various uh, tax incentive type programs. They got uh, it used to be programs where individuals could invest into these projects and get tax benefits. And then about you know about forty years ago now, uh, there there was the creation of the uh, low-income housing tax credit program, which is which has been probably the biggest program 
for both the creation and preservation of affordable housing. And that's one where banks, you know, get are able to purchase credits and, and get tax incentives to invest into projects such as these. And so that has been probably the biggest uh, program that has come out. I would say on the heels of that, that's something that's a program that serves a subset of the universe. And I think private equity on top of that now expands the opportunity set and allows more units to be preserved and also allows more, yeah, more, more populations, more, more communities to benefit because there's only so much, you know, tax exempt bonds and credits that are available and, and there's various requirements for those. And so what really I would say private equity together with the low income housing tax credit, like now has expanded the capital that is, is investing into the space. And, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's still in the early, early innings of where it's going. Cause it's, it's actually one of the largest, uh, asset classes, residential asset classes in in the country and and the level of investment is still still much lower than other areas and the need the needs just you know growing every year. Growing every year. Yeah. So a skeptic might say, well gee, this only works because the government gives you tax breaks or subsidies in some kind. Um, is that partially true or is or is are you able to make a go of it in some projects without the subsidies or tax breaks? It takes, it requires, I would say there, there is truth to some of what you're saying. I think where we focus on is the existing supply. And so we're really, when you think of it, it's, this is a huge need uh, and and this doesn't serve a small subset of the population. This is in, in some in high cost areas. This is most people. Um, and, and so we're really, the way we look at it is, it is going to require support. Uh, the cost of construction, the cost of, of a lot of these projects just exceeds what would be viable in, in almost all areas to what you can do, um, where, where you're then restricting what you can charge in rent. So it takes some level of support. Um, I would I would say that our our approach of, of looking at the existing supply is the most cost effective. So you the amount of subsidy that is required per unit that is is um, preserved as affordable housing is much less than what it would be for new development. And mm. so that's really kind of how we're looking at it is, you know, we're going to serve this need in the most cost efficient way and the way that we can do it at the greatest scale. And I think that's how we look at it, but I, I would say, yeah, there is, there is a need for support from the federal government and, you know, from municipalities who understand that actually, uh, you know, some support then gets leveraged with significant amount of investment into these areas, creates jobs, There's a lot of components, but yeah, I think the, this is, this is typically, there's, there are some exceptions, as you're saying, where things can be done without, you know, some, some level of support, but this is this is a, definitely an area where it, it does take um, you know some level of assistance to to make it work well. As, as time goes on, the private equity groups are getting into it, so it could become more and more to the point where less and less subsidies and less and support could be needed. Uh, it's certainly a, a large addressable market, so it, it might eventually evolve to that. Don't you think? Yeah, I think less and less. I think you know it. 
it'll all depend on a lot of factors, how much, you know, where construction costs keep going and, you know, land costs and, and just oh. a lot of the factors that go into it. Um, but yeah, I think, and then, yeah, I, I think we're always thinking about how can we have each dollar go further and, um, and yeah, I think in terms of the number of units preserved and the amount of subsidy that's getting requested, it's, it's less than it, it was before the advent of, of, of a private investment coming in. So, so now that we get into it, what are some of the challenges to convert like a hotel or a, like a vacant uh, correctional facility into um, housing that could be affordable and, and desirable? Yeah, no, this is something that you'll, it's coming up as a topic in, in areas like New York, um, where there are some of these, um, you know, types of, of real estate properties, and there's, a, and there's a huge need for affordable housing. I think when it comes down to a lot of this, regardless of whatever it is today, it's really what's the all in cost, you know, you, it's there, some of these, you know, hotels, still requires would require a significant amount of renovations and improvements i mean they're not set up to meet the needs of what a full um home would have in there you know they're they're more you know as as a standing a starting point they're probably more you know like a kind of like an sro single room occupancy they don't, they don't typically have full kitchens and but depending on which setup it's yeah i think a lot of the the factors is really what's the cost to take it from where it is today to bringing it to a a residential unit in some some instances that's a smaller <laughs> gap to fill between where it is today and where it's going but i think that's one big question and then you know second is sort of approvals you know you're you know changing the use you got to get the support locally uh but we're seeing yeah we're seeing in new york city there's programs now to convert some hotels into into housing it makes sense uh, it's sort of a case-by-case -case basis i don't think it's a a large scale like you know, solution, but it's something where, you know, you, you may have a starting point that is, is better than, you know, where you would be, where you're trying to find land and, and all that. And so that's, I think that's from the hotel side, the uh, correctional facilities, there's, there's been a couple examples of, of facilities that are no longer in use and talk of like, well, what are we going to do with this? I think that becomes really, um, you know, similarly, you're going to have to get approvals, but then I think there needs to be the support for affordable housing because in a lot of these areas, the highest and best use may not be affordable. And mm -hmm. so then you have to say, hey, actually, we're going to make the decision to to move it in that direction because that's where the need is and we don't have. So I, you know, I think a lot from that perspective, it's really the land I and mean, you're getting mostly with the correctional facility, the land, there might be some quarters there that could be utilized, but in most instances, when I the the vacant you know uh, properties, a good amount of it was obsolete, you know, in terms of structure there for for housing. So you're potentially getting land that could be repurposed, and it might be land that's owned by the city or the state, where maybe the the cost basis. So again, it goes back to the all in costs. And so I think on the on the, on the correctional facility, you may actually be able to have sort of a a free land base potentially if they want to decide to use it towards, towards housing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think innovation is needed. I think the need is only growing and you know, where we're focused is only going to be, it's, it's going to be a big part of the solution, but it's only one part, you know, is, is saying we have 
these 4 million units out there. Let's, let's take it. Let's make it nicer. Let's make sure that we don't lose those units because it's way more expensive to replace them. Um, and then the other thing that we're working on is actually, you know, looking at, and this is more of a, a longer term plan because we're seeing cities get into it is really other are, are properties that are maybe not under an affordable program today, but are already serving um, a, you know, low to moderate income tenant base, what we would call affordable by nature. We kind of take, you know, find those properties, go to the city and say, hey, we're going to add this to the supply. And that's something that, you know, for example, New York City is, has been open to, and, and that's a way to maybe take that four or 5 million units and, and expand it a bit. And I think that's, that's an area of opportunity in select markets where, you know, where the cities maybe have resources to do this. And, and New York City is one of them. It is. So, um, Jason, you know, as the, if the market is addressably much larger than what you're able to fill right now, um, where are these folks living now? Uh, maybe, um, well, well, go ahead. Just tell me what your thought is in it. Yeah. So our properties, when we say what's, you know, what's affordable, it's where our residents are able to live there and not pay that are of a lower moderate income and, and, and are not paying more than 30% of their income. And, and, and it's set up structurally to ensure that. And, and a lot of our residents, but probably about two thirds of our residents are senior citizens retired on a fixed income. But a lot of the programs and a lot of the properties, these are ones where they're paying 30% of their income on rent. And then the rest of it, you know, is made up for from a rental subsidy or other program. Um, at the property. And so when you say where, where are, are other people living, a lot of people are living in properties where, you know, unfortunately it's a high cost of living and they're paying 40, 50, 60% of their income on rent. Um, and it's a pretty, I mean, when you go through, what does that have, what does that do? It, you know, when you spend too much, when you need housing, and so when, when you spend so much of that on on housing, it's usually your first check that you write to make sure you cover the rent. Um, then doesn't leave that much else for for other, you know, services, basic services, even like healthcare and you know your, you know, other other needs of the family. And and then you know even you know when you say hey, you want to improve your life, kind of get additional education, additional um, trainings or other things, it becomes something that becomes almost near impossible. So it's it's sort of a you know a key a key foundation that you. You want to have, but yeah, I think people are living in properties that are unaffordable. Is where most of them are, and then obviously, and there is a segment that is homeless, um, which is another one. But I would say it's both people who are homeless today, but also people who are living. The bigger, the bigger, I would say, category or bucket would be people who are, you know, living in properties where it's really unaffordable, and it's you know putting them basically into poverty because they can't meet the needs of of other things for their family. Um, yeah, no, it's a great service. Um, we, so where are you looking for acquisitions? Uh, still mostly in New York or in other areas of the country? Yeah, we're based in New York, but we're a nationwide platform and we're in seven states today. We're in New Jersey, you know, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, um, Maryland, Florida, Illinois, uh, Rhode Island um, and and expanding to more, and it's really the high cost urban areas is really our 
main main target. Um, and that's really where you have the greatest need for the affordable housing and also where there is, uh, there are plenty of these properties that are ripe for preservation. And we are expanding out to the West Coast, uh, you know, over the next couple of years and we'll be nationwide uh, fairly soon. Nice. So um, interesting. Uh, when you look at um, your role and, you know, how you're developing the company. Um, are you finding any other peers that are joining you in this quest? And they, are they competitors? Are they, are they others who are interested in just good outcomes for society? Yeah, we have. We definitely have competition. There's other groups who do, you know, who invest in the space. And there's other groups that, um, you know, have a focus on preservation. I think the things that make us unique is that this is all we do. You know, it's not one arm of our business. It's not one strategy that we're working on. And so I think that really does differentiate us because we're able to really think about every aspect. How do we do it a little, little bit better? And how do we build out our systems or process? And how do we attract the best talent? I mean, I think our people are the best, the best assets we have. I and mean, we have really great, you know, um, really, really um, talented and, and diverse, uh, you know, team that's bringing really different different uh, backgrounds and experiences to bear and to try to make make our product and company even better. Uh, we do have, you know, you have groups that are developers that are, you know, have built affordable housing and maybe get involved in some of the preservation. And you have uh, groups that manage a lot of capital and you know, big institutions. And then they say, Hey, this is an interesting asset class and they invest into it. That's a growing part of what we're seeing. Um, and, you know, and there are, you know, a couple other groups that have, you know, raised funds like us with, within affordable housing. Uh, but for the size of the, I would say for the market, the size of the market, there is uh, more limited competition than what you would expect to see. And so I think over time there's, there's going to be more, more groups that, that look like us. And, um, and I think that's going to be a good thing for, for the industry and for the residents because there'll be more capital invested and competition to deliver better, better products. Well, you've had some great success uh, with, with this whole segment and, uh, and you've had some good background to lead you to a point where you know how to, how to achieve success, which is great. Um, what are your biggest challenges as you, address this and try to grow and serve the mission that you're looking to achieve? Yeah, no, so we're um, big ambitions, really big ambitions. I think, I think really the sky is the limit of what we're doing. And I, I really think, you know, we could scale up to many times where we are today, but we're really, really not focused on being the biggest. We're focused on being the best. And it may end up being we're, we're, we're the best and that leads us to becoming the biggest, but really trying to keep the quality and the standards, um, not just keeping it at a level, but constantly thinking, how can we make it better? So I think as we're scaling, the, the, the business is really complex. Each deal has its own unique challenges. And mm -hmm. I think the challenges that are things that I think about you know, in my role is how do we go from those you know, seven states to the 12 states, but keeping the same standards, you know, as we grow and it's going to be around, you know, really building good systems and process, but also getting great people. And I spend, yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time, my partner and I of really thinking about 
that aspect of, you know, we started this brand, you know, both the two of us were very hands-on with everything. And I think we're able to, you know, the kind of the normal story of an entrepreneur at first, you're just kind of doing everything and your, you know, your hand handprints are on everything. And then you, as you scale, you really need to build out a great team and we've done that. And I think that's something that as we scale is going to be, you know, the key challenge to think of, I, you know, there's the normal competitive challenges where other people are going to be doing this. That actually is you know, less of a concern as we continue to get smarter and use data, you know, from past projects and past transactions to, to make better decisions going forward. I think we'll continue to, to set ourselves apart. Um, but yeah, I think it's just sort of how do we, how do we keep scaling this and keeping the quality high and, and, you know, not, you know, not, um, you know, not changing that approach, you know, as we, as we grow, because we're getting, we're getting, you know, a lot more interest from, from, you know, investors. And we've been doing really controlled growth is really kind of what we're doing to make sure we, we don't, you know, bite off more we can chew than we can chew or do anything that's too much than, you know, but I think that's, you know, we're, we're going to be doing this for a long time. And I think we're really, you know, built a great platform and it's, it's, um, it's a, it's addressing a need that, is really important and growing. You know, it's um, <clears throat> it's interesting as we've done the more and more of these shows, Jason, to understand who's listening to you and I right now. And we've we figured out through the tracking of listeners that we've been heard on six continents. Oh, wow. Um, we're still holding out for Antarctica, but that's a whole nother <laughs> story. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks around the world are very interested in the American entrepreneurial spirit and, and how we operate in America. So um, considering the fact that we might be talking to some people outside of America, um, is, is there any kind of overarching message you'd like to send to the people of the world about affordable housing in America and, and how you're operating and how you're addressing your market? Yeah, I mean, I would. I mean, I would say from an entrepreneurial side, I think <clears throat> this is. I guess first from the entrepreneurial, and maybe go into the affordable housing. I would say a lot of times people are like, "Man, this this should be done this way or another way." There's a better way. And sometimes people get they kind of are like, "Well, if it's not being done, it's because someone must have tried it and didn't figure it out." And like, you kind of like talk yourself into like why whatever your idea may you know may not work. But I would say. What I found from my own experience is, you know, there's a good chance that if you see that there's something should be done a different way or there's a better idea that there's a, there's an opportunity there. It's really because things are constantly in motion, doors open at different times. And really the, the reason why you're seeing that opportunity is because you are where you are at your point in time. And, and I really so I think from an entrepreneurial uh, standpoint, I think that that's something um, I've always thought is my one of my big wisdoms it's like you know don't don't assume that it's you know the reason it's not being done is because you know someone else tried and failed it might be because no one no one's done it the way you're you're thinking about it so i think that's a big maybe motivational thing is people around the world that you may see something that's that's um you know could be done better and you you, you're motivated to try to see that happen i would say explore it further because there could be an opportunity there and then i would say you know i think some of the bigger societal problems or challenges like the need for affordable housing I'm a big believer in sort of social entrepreneurship and in finding, you know, for-profit solutions to some of the social problems. And I think is the benefit of that, if you are able to, to find that and make it 
you know, profitable and sustainable, it'll attract more investment. Um, it'll attract more interest and you can do it at a, at a bigger scale. And so I think, you know, as I think maybe get, you know, affordable housing, if you just focus on that, that there's a huge need there. And I think, you know, similar to what, you know, the needs are, you know, people need places to live regardless of what continent you're on and people need uh, quality housing. And, and I think with the internet, you know, one thing we do is we, we put all, we, we're putting Wi-Fi into really all of our properties now as a, as a basic uh, amenity to the residents. But what that does is it, it attacks the digital divide, but it also allows you to stream, you know, education and telemedicine and other services. And I think, I think in a lot of around the world, there's probably opportunities to do something similar of, you know, using the, the home as a way to get people more connected to what's going on with the innovation in mm -hmm in the world and so but i, I think that's great if there's a, I, I love the idea that there's global, uh, global audience and um that's pretty pretty cool pretty cool that you have this it is cool and you know and and, and maybe uh part, part of another thought process here would be that you know the american uh democratic uh capitalism type system um it is uh unique in one sense that some folks want only a business solution to everything. And some folks in certain countries want only a government solution. But what, we're, what we've carved out here is a partnership between government interests, societal interests, and business interests to do good for different segments of the economy, in this case, the affordable housing market. And uh, so that's a great message, I think. For sure. For sure. A public-private model is a, you know, could be a great, great solution to a lot of problems. It would be. Well, great. Well, you've been a great guest. We really appreciate you being part of this and uh, telling everybody your story and and creating a model and uh, kind of a vision for how partnerships like this can be can be done in a very effective way and help society. Uh, entrepreneurs can can prosper as well from doing it. It's uh, the classic win 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 and all that other great stuff, right? So. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a great experience. And thanks for having me on as a guest. Uh, and hope to thank your, you, uh, your audience. They uh, they found it informative. Thank you, Jason. Uh, appreciate your being with us, and good luck with Hudson Valley Group. And and um, thanks everybody today for being with us on the Four Star uh, Today's Market Explained uh, interview series today. And we're looking forward to doing some more interviews with other really smart entrepreneurial people uh, again soon, like Jason. So um, thanks, everybody, for being with us. Thank you again, Jason. And uh, we'll leave it there for today. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about maximizing your stock market returns with the least amount of time and effort, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com and download our free guide on the 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals. If you felt any benefit from this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this with anyone you think will also find value and benefit from this. And please follow Today's Market Explained on 
TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube to see all the short video clips covering the most valuable moments from today's episode. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We can't wait to tell you everything we're seeing in the financial investment markets. This podcast is provided by Four Star Wealth Advisors for the general uh, public and general information purposes only. The information is not considered to be an offer to buy or sell any securities or investments. Investing involves the risk of loss and investors should be prepared to bear potential losses. Investments should only be made after thorough review with your investment advisor, considering all factors including personal goals, needs, and risk tolerance. Four Star is an SEC registered investment advisor, maintains a principal business in the state of Illinois. The firm may only transact business in states in which it's notice filed or qualifies for a corresponding exemption from such requirements. For information about Four Star's registration status and business operations, please consult the firm's Form ADV disclosure documents, the most recent versions of which are available on the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov.